Part thirty nine of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part thirty nine Thomas Horner and James Fryer executed for burglary. The offence of these prisoners was attended by circumstances of great daring. From the evidence adduced at their trial, which took place at the Old Bailey Sessions in the month of April, 1778, it appeared that on the evening of the 1st of March the prisoners, with three other men, were seen at Finchley together, and that while drinking in a public house they made many inquiries of the persons present with regard to the house and family of a Mr. Cluen, a gentleman of respectability, who resided in the neighbourhood. On the same night, between twelve and one o'clock, Mr. Cluen's house was entered by five persons, whose faces were disguised, and the noise created by their rushing upstairs being heard by Miss Cluen and her servant, they immediately ran out of their bedchambers to see what was the matter. They were forced to return, however, and three of the men, having entered their room, compelled them to cover their heads with the bedclothes, uttering loud threats in the case of their offering any resistance. The men-servants, who slept at the top of the house, being now alarmed, the thieves proceeded to their apartment, and one of them, named Quick, having got up, he received a severe blow with an iron bar, and, like his mistress, was compelled with his fellows to cover himself up with the bedclothes. The two fellows then remained to watch them, while the rest went to Mr. Cluin's room, and treated him in the same manner, and then they proceeded to the bedchamber of his son, whom they forced to go to his father's bed, holding his hands before his eyes, so that he should not distinguish who were his assailants. Then they ransacked the house, and in about half an hour returned, saying that if young Cluin would tell them where the money was, they would give him his watch, which they had taken from under his pillow. But this being refused, they went away, saying that they were only going for some victuals and would return. The house was then immediately examined by Mr. Cluin, and it was found that the thieves had effected an entrance by means of the back door, and that they had fastened up that as well as the front entrance by nailing staples over the locks. It was afterwards discovered that they had carried off twenty-two guineas, fifty pounds in banknotes, a quantity of plate, several gold rings, a silver watch, and other property to a considerable amount information of the robbery was immediately conveyed to Sir John Fielding, whose officers, recognising the offenders from the description given of their persons, succeeded in securing the prisoners. Friar, at a small house which he occupied in the city road, where there were found a number of picklock keys, and a hanger, and Horner at his lodgings in Perkins' Rents, Westminster, a cutlass being concealed under his bed. Two supposed accomplices, named Condon and Jordan, were also apprehended, but nothing distinct being proved against them, they escaped. Jordan, however, being afterwards convicted for a second burglary in Copenhagen House, for which he received the sentence of death. Conviction having followed the production of this evidence, sentence of death was passed. Upon the sacrament being administered to Horner and Fryer, they admitted their guilt, and were executed at Tyburn, on the 24th of June, 1778. The other offenders were subsequently also apprehended and executed. The Reverend James Hackman, executed for murder. The case of this unfortunate gentleman was long the topic of general conversation. Pamphlets and poems were written on the subject, and the fate of Mr. Hackman was generally pitied, as it was conceived that he was the victim of an insane love, 
a conclusion which will now be the more readily arrived at when the circumstances under which the murder, of which he was found guilty, was committed while considered. It appears that Mr. Hackman was born at Gosport, in Hampshire, and was originally designed for trade, in which his father was engaged. It was found, however, that his disposition was of too volatile a nature to admit of his success in any business, and his parents, willing to promote his interests to the extent of their power, purchased for him a commission as ensign in the 68th Regiment of Foot. He had not been long in the service before he was entrusted to the command of a recruiting party, and going to Huntingdon in pursuance of his instructions, he there became known to the Earl of Sandwich, who had a seat in the neighbourhood, and by whom he was frequently invited to dinner. It appears that he now first became acquainted with the object of his passion, and the victim of his crime. Miss Ray was the daughter of a stay-maker in Covent Garden, and served her apprenticeship to a mantua-maker in George's Court, St. John's Lane, Clerkenwell. She was bound when only thirteen, and during her apprenticeship was taken notice of by the nobleman above mentioned, who took her under his protection, and treated her with every mark of tenderness. At the time of her being introduced to Mr. Hackman, she had lived with her noble protector during a period of nineteen years, and in the course of that time had borne him nine children. But although she was nearly twice the age of Mr. Hackman, no sooner had he seen her than he became violently enamoured of her. It was while he was tormented by this unhappy and ungovernable passion that he found that any hopes which he might entertain of preferment in the army were not likely to be realised, and he determined to turn his thoughts to the church. In pursuance of this design he took orders, and he obtained the living of Wiverton in Norfolk, only about Christmas preceding the shocking deed which cost him his life. How long he had been in London previous to this affair is not certainly known, but at the time of its occurrence he lodged in Duke's Court, St. Martin's Lane. On the morning of 7th of April, 1779, he sat for a considerable time in his closet, reading Blair's sermons. But in the evening he took a walk to the Admiralty, where he saw Miss Ray go into the coach along with Signora Galley, who attended her. The coach drove to Covent Garden Theatre, where the ladies stayed to see the performance of Love in a Village, and Mr. Hackman went into the theatre at the same time, but not being able to contain the violence of his passion, he returned, and again went to his lodgings, and having loaded two pistols, went to the playhouse, where he waited till the play was over. Seeing Miss Ray ready to step into the coach, he took a pistol in each hand, one of which he discharged against her, which killed her on the spot, and the other at himself, which, however, did not take effect. He then beat himself with the butt-end on his head, in order to destroy himself, so fully was he bent on the destruction of both. But after a struggle he was secured, his wounds dressed, and then he was carried before Sir John Fielding, who committed him to Tothill Fields Bridewell, and next to Newgate, where a person was appointed to attend him, lest he should lay violent hands on himself. In Newgate, as he knew he had no favour to expect, he prepared himself for the awful change which was about to take place. He had dined with his sister on the day on which the murder was committed, and in the afternoon he wrote a letter to her husband, Mr. Booth, an eminent attorney, informing him of his intention to destroy himself, and desiring him to sell what effects he had in order to pay a small debt which he owed. But it appears that the letter was not dispatched, as it was found in his pocket. The prisoner was indicted at the ensuing Old Bailey Sessions, 
and it was proved by Mr. McNamara that on Wednesday the 7th of April he was quitting the theatre when, seeing Miss Ray, with whom he was slightly acquainted, he offered her his assistance in reaching her carriage. She accepted his preferred arm, and just as they were in the piazza, he heard the report of a pistol, when he directly felt his arm compressed by the lady's hand, and then she immediately fell to the ground. He thought at first that the lady had fallen from fright only, but on stooping to raise her up, he found that his hand was bloody, and he then saw that she was wounded. He immediately conveyed her into the Shakespeare Tavern, whither the prisoner soon after followed in custody. He asked him some questions about his reason for shooting Miss Ray, but the only answer which he gave was that that was not the place to satisfy him. The prisoner afterwards said that his name was Hackman, and he sent for Mr. Booth, who lived in Craven Street. Other evidence was also adduced, from which it appeared that the prisoner followed Miss Ray out of the theatre, and having tapped her on the shoulder to attract her attention, he suddenly drew two pistols from his pocket, one of which he discharged at her, and the other at himself. They both fell feet to feet, and the prisoner then beat himself about the head, and called out for someone to kill him. He was secured by a Mr. McMahon, who dressed his wounds, and conveyed him to the Shakespeare Tavern, where Miss Ray almost immediately afterwards died. On his being called upon for his defence, the prisoner addressed the court in the following terms. I should not have troubled the court with the examination of witnesses to support the charge against me, had I not thought that the pleading guilty to the indictment gave an indication of contemning death not suitable to my present condition, and was in some measure being accessory to a second peril of my life, and I therefore thought that the justice of my country ought to be satisfied by suffering my offence to be proved, and the fact established by evidence. I stand here this day the most wretched of human beings, and confess myself criminal in a high degree, yet while I acknowledge, with shame and repentance, that my determination against my own life was formal and complete, I protest with that regard to truth which becomes my situation, that the will to destroy her, who was ever dearer to me than life, was never mine till a momentary frenzy overcame me, and induced me to commit the deed I now deplore. The letter which I meant for my brother-in-law after my decease will have its due weight as to this point with good men. Before this dreadful act I trust nothing will be found in the tenor of my life which the common charity of mankind will not excuse. I have no wish to avoid the punishment which the laws of my country appoint for my crime, but being already too unhappy to feel a punishment in death or a satisfaction in life, I submit myself with penitence and patience to the disposal and judgment of Almighty God, and to the consequences of this inquiry into my conduct and intention. The following letter was then read. My dear Frederick, when this reaches you I shall be no more, but do not let my unhappy fate distress you too much. I have strove against it as long as possible, but it now overpowers me. You well know where my affections were placed, my having by some means or other lost hers, an idea which I could not support, has driven me to madness. The world will condemn me, but your good heart will pity me. God bless you, my dear Frederick. Would I had a sum to leave you to convince you of my great regard. You was my only friend. I have hid one circumstance from you which gives me great pain. I owe Mr. Knight of Gosport one hundred pounds, for which he has the writings of my houses. But I hope in God, when they are sold and all other matters collected, there will be nearly enough to settle our account. 
May Almighty God bless you and yours with comfort and happiness, and may you ever be a stranger to the pangs I now feel. May Heaven protect my beloved woman, and forgive this act, which alone could relieve me from a world of misery I have long endured. Oh, if it should ever be in your power to do her an act of friendship, remember your faithful friend, J. Hackman. The jury immediately returned their fatal verdict. The unhappy man heard their sentence pronounced against him with calm resignation to his fate, and employed the very short time allowed murderers after conviction in repentance and prayer. During the procession to the fatal tree at Tyburn, he seemed much affected, and said but little, and when he arrived at Tyburn, and got out of the coach and mounted the cart, he took leave of Dr. Porter and the ordinary, in the most affectionate manner. After some time spent in prayer, he was turned off on April the 19th, 1779, and, having hung the usual time, his body was carried to Surgeon's Hall for dissection. James Donnelly, executed for robbery. This offender was one of a class of the most mischievous and most daring robbers, and the case which we have to relate is one of a most atrocious nature, the extortion of money by means of threats to charge the person imposed upon with a detestable crime, an offence which we regret to say has been but too prevalent in later years. In the month of February 1779, James, alias Patrick Donnelly, was indicted at the sessions held at the Old Bailey, for that he, on the King's Highway, in and upon the Honourable Charles Fielding, did make an assault, putting him in corporeal fear and danger of his life, and did steal from his person and against his will half a guinea on the 18th of January. And there was also a second count which imputed him to a similar offence, on the 20th of the same month, in robbing the prosecutor of a guinea. From the evidence adduced, it appeared that the prosecutor was the second son of the Earl of Denby. Between six and seven o'clock on the evening of the 18th of January, he was going from the house of a lady, with whom he had dined, to Covent Garden Theatre, when, on passing through Soho Square, the prisoner came up to him and demanded some money. Mr. Fielding was surprised at this address, and requested to know upon what ground he applied to him, upon which the prisoner immediately said that if he did not comply, he would take him before a magistrate, and impute to him the commission of a foul crime. Terrified by the insinuation, he handed half a guinea to him, which was all the money then in his possession, and returning to the house which he had just quitted, he borrowed half a guinea of the servant, in order that he might pursue his original intention of going to the theatre. On the 20th of the same month he was in Oxford Road, when the prisoner again accosted him, and saying that he could not have forgotten what passed the other night in Soho Square, declared that he must have money, or else that he would follow up the intention which he had before expressed, and added that he knew it would go hard with him unless he could prove an alibi. Mr. Fielding at this time was without money, but going to Mr. Waters, a grocer in Bond Street, he borrowed a guinea from him, which, under the influence of fear, he handed to the prisoner. On the 12th of February, a third attempt at extortion was made by the prisoner, but in this instance, owing to the great resemblance between Mr. Fielding and his brother Lord Fielding, he mistook the latter for the former. Lord Fielding was on Hay Hill, when the prisoner accosted him in terms implying that he had seen him before. His lordship, however, expressed himself at a loss to know what he meant, 
when he asked him if he did not remember giving him half a guinea in Soho Square and a guinea at the grocer's in Bond Street. Lord Fielding utterly denied all the recollection of either affair, and said that the prisoner should go before a magistrate to explain his meaning. The prisoner assented, and they proceeded together in the direction of Bow Street, but they had not gone many paces before the prisoner held back, and said that he would go no further. Lord Fielding became rather alarmed, and, being terrified by the prisoner's threats, he allowed him to escape. On the Tuesday following, however, as he was passing near the same spot, a voice, which he recognised as that of the prisoner, called out, "'My lord, I have met you again,' and the prisoner, at the same time coming up from behind him, his lordship seized him by the collar. The prisoner declared that he had been used ill when he last saw his lordship, upon which the latter declared that he had used him too well, and would take care now that he should not get away again. Donnelly now desired to be treated like a gentleman, saying that he would not be dragged, but would go quietly and Lord Fielding, not seeing any person who was likely to assist him, and apprehending a rescue, told him that, if he would walk along quietly to the next coffee-house, he would not drag him. They walked down Dover Street together, but the prisoner, increasing his pace, Lord Fielding followed and seized him. He fell down twice, but was again seized as soon as he arose. By this time a crowd was assembled. Major Hartley, and two other gentlemen happened to come by, and with their aid the prisoner was secured and conveyed to Bow Street, where the magistrates, on hearing the evidence, thought that the crime amounted to highway robbery, and committed him for trial accordingly. Donnelly, in his defence, acknowledged that he had met Lord Fielding twice, that he had addressed him with decency, and desired him to hear something respecting his brother, and that Sir John Fielding had made the Honourable Charles Fielding carry on the prosecution. He did not deny the receipt of the guinea at the grocer's in Bond Street, but averred that he did not deserve death on account of the charge against him. The jury, having considered the whole evidence, brought in a verdict of guilty, but Mr. Justice Buller, before whom the offender was tried, reserved the case for the opinion of the judges on a point of law. On the 29th of April, 1779, the judges met, and gave their opinion on this case, pronouncing it a new species of robbery to evade the law but which was not to be evaded, and the prisoner therefore underwent its sentence, which he had, with most abominable wickedness, brought upon his own head. Another diabolical villain of this description, named John Staples, was on the 6th of December, 1779, hanged at Tyburn for extorting money from Thomas Harris Crosby, Esquire, by charging him with an abominable crime. Morgan Phillips, executed for murder and arson. The case of this malefactor so strongly resembles that of a person named Edward Morgan, an account of whose crime we have already given, that we are induced to hope, for the sake of humanity, that some mistake has arisen in describing them as separate offences. The crime for which the person whose case we are now considering most justly suffered was attended with extraordinary acts of cruelty. The inhabitants of Narbeth, a small village in the county of Pembroke, were in the middle of one night in the month of March, 1779, alarmed with the appearance of fire bursting from a farmhouse near the turnpike. Before they could render assistance, the house was nearly razed to the ground, and the family were missing. On examining the ruins, the remains of the owner, Mr. Thomas, an old and respectable farmer, were found on a bench in a leaning posture, but so much burnt that it was impossible to determine 
whether he had been first murdered or had perished by the flames. Proceeding in the search, the next unhappy victim found was his niece, a fine young woman of about thirty years of age, whose body lay across the feet of a half-burnt bedstead, with a thigh broken and an arm missing. Among the ruins of another room was discovered the body of a labouring man, much burnt, but with a large wound on the back of his head, from which much blood had issued, and Mrs. Thomas's servant-woman, who was exceedingly robust, was also found dead at the entrance of one of the rooms, with several deep wounds in her head, and her hair clotted with blood. Her body was not so much burned as the others, and near her was discovered a large kitchen split, half-bent, with which it was conjectured she had opposed the murderers, for there could now be no doubt that the horrid scene which presented itself was the work of some person, who, for the sake of plundering the house, had massacred its inhabitants, and had then fired the premises, in order to conceal his bloody crimes. So horrible a deed excited universal attention, and every means was taken to secure its author. A man named John Morris, a lazy, worthless character, who had been already in custody upon other charges, was apprehended on suspicion of being concerned in the affair, but he effectually put an end to all hopes of eliciting any information from him by throwing himself into a coal-pit, in spite of the efforts of the constables, in whose care he was, to restrain him, where his mangled remains were afterwards found. At length suspicion fell on Morgan Phillips, and he, finding the general belief to be that he was guilty of this most horrible crime, at length confessed that he and Morris had been its perpetrators, that they had broken into the house of the farmer, and having murdered the family, from whom they met with considerable resistance, they had carried off all the valuable property which they could find, and had then set fire to the farm to prevent discovery. The prisoner being put upon his trial at Haverford West, his confession was read to him, and assented to as being true, and its leading points being corroborated by other witnesses, he was found guilty, and suffered death at the same place, on the 5th of April, 1779. End of part 39